going to do today by saying, I, I don't want today to be all that uh, academic. You're not going to get much out of me this morning in the way of uh, breaking down Greek words for you like sometimes I usually do. You're not going to get that because uh, God has been working. I, I heard some, I think it was Charles Spurgeon one time said, God doesn't prepare sermons, God prepares men to preach them. Uh, God has been preparing this sermon in your pastor all week long. Uh, that it is so interesting to me how our sovereign God can do that, where He so much works out conversations between people, um, things that happen, your own private Bible reading, your own private prayer, uh, things that you experience in your family, um, along with your studying and preparation of the sermon, that just makes painfully clear exactly what uh, God wants me to be talking about today. And it's not all that academic, it's not all that complex of a concept, but it is in fact one that it is very easy for us to just slip by and not think about. Uh, today I want to talk about the motivation for Christian living. In other words, I want to ask, why do we even do what we do? Why do we even do what we do? Are we here today because it's Sunday? You say, no, absolutely not, Josh. We're here today because Sunday is the Lord's day. That, that's, you're still not answering my question. I agree with you. It's, it's the Lord's day, right? You know, it's the Lord's day that, that we worship on Sunday because... That memorializes the day that Jesus rose from the dead. That I agree with you. It is the Lord's day. But, you know, doesn't Monday belong to the Lord too? What about Tuesday? Thursday? Saturday? You know, what motivates us what we do on those days? You know, the, la the last time you shared the gospel with somebody, if you shared the gospel with somebody, why did you do it? Did you do it because it was something you were supposed to do? Maybe you did it because you were afraid of what God would do to you if you didn't. Let's be honest. Y'all, we're going to have a family talk today. Is that all right? I don't got my coat unbuttoned. I'm comfortable and everything. We're going to have a family talk today. And I will raise my hand first. You don't have to if you're afraid of. I will raise my hand first. Have you ever done something or not done something because you were afraid of what God would do to you if you did otherwise? Every single one of us has. You know what the sad part about that thing is? That is not the way the Bible says we're supposed to be motivated. If you are living a Christianity, <clears throat> if you can even call it that, which by the way, I don't think you can, if this is your motivation. If you are living a Christianity that you are motivated by either A, working hard enough to make God happy with you, or B, working hard enough that you don't feel like you need to be afraid of what He might do to you, it is no wonder that your faith is probably struggling. Because that's not Christianity. That's not the way God wants you to be motivated. 
Christians should be the most joyful people on planet Earth. We should be joyful. We should be happy. Not all the time, okay? I'm not, I'm not going to be one of those guys that's, you know, happy, clappy, let's act like nothing is wrong with the world, okay? Everybody in my house has been sick with some form of disease for the last five weeks, okay? And I know several other y'all in here that I've talked to that I've come... Y'all been sick too? Yes, I know. You have not been happy constantly 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the last five or six weeks, have you? No. I'm not saying you should be. That's, that's a joke. But I am saying that Christians should have a deep and abiding joy. And where does that come from? Well, stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. <coughs> and then we'll talk about this. <coughs> Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you that you're a God who's easy to love. Lord, I thank you you're a God who loves us when we're not. And that love that you have for us ought to motivate us to love you. And Lord, if our love for you is in the right spot, then we won't have to worry about obedience. That'll happen. We won't have to worry about enthusiasm. That'll happen. We won't have to worry about consistency. That'll happen. Lord, I pray that when you dismiss us from from this place today, Lord, I pray every single one of us would leave here thinking about, do I love my God the way I ought to? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Today I want to talk about the motivation for Christian living. And normally my sermons tend to be somewhat front heavy that we'll talk a lot about the first point, a little bit about the second point, and we'll close up with the last one. Today it's going to be reversed. Uh, So listen quick because we're going to go through points one and point two relatively fast because they are what God doesn't necessarily want from us. What I want to get to is what God does want from us. Now, where we are literarily in the book of Revelation uh, is we are getting to one of the most interesting parts in the entirety of the New Testament. Because chapter 2 begins a series of seven letters to churches in what would have been known as Asia Minor. Um, Now, when you think of Asia, you probably think the... The, the far east of what is now the Asian continent. You think of China, you think of Japan, you think of you know, those areas kind of over there. You think you know, maybe the Philippines, 
you know, places like that, India, you know, that, that's what you think of as Asia. We're not talking about that Asia. We're talking about the Roman province of Asia, which would have been closer to, uh, closer to, the, to the Mediterranean kind of area. That all seven of these churches, if you were to draw a map, John is writing the book of Revelation from the island of Patmos, which is roughly 40 miles off the coast. And he's looking back toward the mainland in kind of a cone. And all seven of these churches are in 100, within 100 square miles of each other. Okay? So this is, I mean, if you take our Baptist Association and its sister association, if you take Hepzibah and Kilpatrick and you were to put them together, then you're, you're roughly the size of this area he's writing to. So if you were to have seven real big churches and put them in a little triangle, that's kind of the world we're dealing with. Well, Jesus had a specific message for each of those seven churches. And this that we're looking at is the church in Ephesus. That any of y'all now, now the Bible is inspired and inerrant and perfect, but your subheadings that are over the text are not. They were added by your publisher. Do any of y'all have a subheading over chapter 2 verse 1? You do? I got one that says the loveless church. What about y'all? Yes. Okay. So this, this church has got a lot of good going for it, but it's also got a massive problem. Let's look at the good stuff. First, God doesn't merely want good works. How many of y'all thought that, you know, when, when you came here this morning, your pastor was going to stand up here and say, here's a list of good things that God wants you to do? I hope not. <laughs> Christianity is not a to-do list, though I do love a good to-do list. I think all of us do. That might be part of the problem. That, that God wants more than just your good works. <clears throat> so let's start looking through this. Verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, let's demystify that a little bit. Angel can mean two things. It can mean the supernatural creature that we're all familiar with. Those are, in fact, real. I'm not denying that by saying what I'm about to say. Uh, but in this particular case, the meaning of the word angelos, the Greek word angelos, probably just means messenger, which translates out to meaning this is Jesus writing a letter to the pastor of the church at Ephesus. He's dictating it to John, and John is writing it. Now, y'all, I'm sorry. If I ever get a direct letter that says to the angel of the church at Stapleton from Jesus in red, after y'all wake me up, um, I, I'm going to read it very closely. <laughs> you know, that's, that's exactly what happens in Ephesus. So you've got to imagine this message reaches Ephesus uh, from John, who they would have recognized, uh, and, and they would have opened it and gone, oh my goodness, this is a message from the risen Christ himself. We better pay attention to it closely. So this is what he says. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the golden lampstands. What? We talked about that last week. Jesus explained that in the previous paragraph. The seven stars that Jesus is holding in his right hand are the angels or pastors of these seven churches. So Jesus is saying, I'm the one who holds the pastors of these churches in my hand. I keep them, I guard them, I protect them, I know them, and I walk in the midst of the seven lampstands. The seven lampstands are the churches themselves. So Jesus is saying, I know your leaders, I know your churches, I am among you. This is not distant truth that someone is telling me about. I am among you, I know you, I know who you are. 
So now let's talk. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. Now, one of the commentaries I was reading, uh, <clears throat> the New, New International Commentary on the New Testament, says uh, that there are two nouns that follow uh, works. That one of them uh, gives an active side of the lifestyle and the other one gives a passive uh, kind of lifestyle. But they both have to do with his work. On the one hand, the, the works, the labor, when, he, when Jesus says, I know your works, he doesn't just mean the little stuff you do here and there. He means the hard work. The, the, the Greek word means things you do that exhaust you. Hard work. This is like akin to manual labor. The heavy lifting of your faith. Have you ever in your Christian life experienced something that was heavy lifting? That it was just flat hard. That God asked you to do something or you knew God expected you to do something that was not easy. That's the heavy lifting of your faith. Jesus says, I know this about you. I know that you do the heavy lifting. My pastor that, that spent a lot of time, five years of my life training me before I came here, he used to tell our church members at Winterville over and over and over, do hard things. Sounds a lot like the gospel that, that Jesus preached when he was on earth, right? Like, you know, people would come to him and they would say, you know, we're going to talk about this man a little bit later, the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus says, keep the commandments. And, the, and then he says, I've done all these for my youth. What else do I lack? And Jesus says, yeah, you need to go sell everything and give it to the poor and come follow me. That was hard for that man. You know, maybe for you, it's, it, it's not giving away your, your possessions, you know, to the degree that he did. Maybe for you, it's forgiving somebody. <clears throat> maybe for you, it's talking to somebody who really hurt you. Maybe for you, it's putting up with somebody that's real hard to put up with. Whatever it is, you know that there is something that God has called you to do that you can look in his word and you can see confirmation and you can say that this is extremely tiring or difficult to do. <coughs> Jesus is looking at the church at Ephesus and he says, guys, you do hard things. I see that. I notice that about you. And then the second work, the labor, the patience, this is kind of passive. This is when you take the first kind of work the heavy lifting, and you stretch this out over long periods of time. This is endurance. This is not... Okay, so y'all, the Super Bowl's today. I'm not going to watch it because I don't care anything about either of those teams and I'm still bitter that my Falcons are bad, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. We, I'm not in pulpit. I ain't going to lie. I'm mad. Um, and Georgia broke my heart too, but that's okay. But if you watch the NFL Combine... Which, if you're a sports geek, it's like, it's one of the greatest things ever because it's dudes lifting lots of weight and running really fast. One of the things that they do is they do the bench press. And they put 225 pounds on there, which to me, I mean, I know I'm a giant hulking block of muscle, but 
But, you know, 225 is a lot for me. But they don't just put 225 on the bar and say do it one time just to prove that you can. No, at the NFL Combine what they do is they put 225 on the bar and they say go. Until when? Until you can't. We want to know how many times you can bench 225. We don't want to just see your power. We want to see your endurance. We don't want you to just lift it once. We want you to lift it over and over and over and over and over. and You get it? Remember when they came to Jesus and, and they said, Jesus, when my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Seven? And they felt real good, didn't they? Seven times? And Jesus said, no. Nah, Seventy times seven. Or depending on your translation, 77. Either way, a lot. Like, un- without end. <clears throat> it's not just heavy lifting that Jesus recognizes in the church at Ephesus. It's the fact that they do hard things and they continue to do them. Wouldn't that be a good thing to be said about Stapleton Baptist? Wouldn't you like that? That If Jesus stepped in that door right there, right now, or stepped into your house, stepped into your family, stepped into your private Christian life and said, I just want to let you know, uh, Rolf. I just want to let you know, uh, Martha Ann. I just want to let you know, Jimmy. I see the heavy lifting you do and I see how consistent you are with it. That would make you happy, wouldn't it? You'd be like, man, I'll tell you what, that's a compliment I'm not going to fight, Jesus. If you want to say that, I will accept that. Praise you. I will. That's good. But that's not enough. In a sense, living the Christian life is hard work. Now, don't mistake, it's not hard to enter the Christian life at all. Your pastor is never going to stand in front of you and tell you that Jesus is only happy with you if you, if you live a perfect life. Your pastor's not perfect. Now, I'm not going to put a burden on you I can't bear. I sin every day. Who all, who all hadn't sinned every day this last week? Raise your hand and go ahead and lie and knock it off. Uh, y'all, all, y'all all have we all sin the good news about Jesus Christ is that Jesus has been good for me Jesus has been righteous for me and when I go to the cross he takes all my unrighteousness and gives me all his righteousness and he nails that sin up there where he died and when he was buried he buried my sin with him and when he rose he brought my life back with him that's why I'm alive that's why God views me as righteous is because Jesus is it's easy to enter the Christian life but once you hear it ain't easy to live it is it nope Not always. To live it is a battle every day. You fight sin one day and you battle its tendency to try and take you over and run your life and run the way you do things. And you will know immediately this is a lesson easily learned that Christianity is not easy. 
It's not just heavy lifting. It's heavy lifting over the long haul. And this is a tempting end for some people. Because particularly in the Western world, we've got what's called the Protestant work ethic. Or we should. And there is something that we view as noble about hard work. And for good reason. It's a high compliment to tell somebody they're a hard worker, right? So, man, you want to, when somebody tells you, man, they're a hard worker, man, you kind of puff your chest out and you're like, yeah, I'm a hard worker. I work real hard all the time. And so it's real tempting to look at Christianity and say, ooh, there's a lot of hard work to be done there. I can sink my teeth into this. I can grab that heavy weight. I can pick it up. I can work as hard as I can. And God's going to be so proud of me. Yes, I'm going to work hard because I can do that. If I work hard enough, long enough, God won't have any choice but to be pleased with me. And guess what? You strayed off the... You strayed off of where Jesus wants you to go. Because you're now motivated by the difficulty of the work. You're motivated by trying to earn God's pleasure by your work. That you value the work of the church more than you value the Jesus of the church. Do you know that you can fall so in love with ministry that you neglect Jesus? It's possible. Matthew 19, verses 17 through 20. We'll look at this man, then we'll move to the second one. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he, this is Jesus, said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Which hard works do I have to do? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these things I've kept from my youth. What do I still lack? That he had looked at all of these heavy lifts and he said, I've done them over and over and over since I was a young boy. But there's still something I lack. And Jesus was about to tell him what it was. He loved the work and he loved the reward, but he didn't have love. Christianity is not about your works. It's not about how hard you work. It's not about how long you work. God doesn't merely want right works. Second, God doesn't merely want right doctrine. The second half of verse 2 and verse 6. Jesus looks at him and says, And you've tested those who say they're apostles and are not and have found them liars. And then in verse 6, he says, And you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, who are the Nicolaitans? I have no idea. They're not around anymore, but they were very obviously some heretical sect that was there, that was impinging on correct belief. And Jesus is saying, I I hate their deeds, and you do too. And that's a good thing. 
Now, I was in Sunday school this morning and Anthony's, Anthony's teaching and he said something that I wholeheartedly agree with. Y'all, there's some good preaching on Christian radio. You know that? There's some good preaching on Christian radio. If you flip to the wrong station, there's some bad preaching on radio too, isn't there? There's some bad preaching. Oh my goodness. If, if your preacher's on TV and he's not named Adrian Rogers or Charles Stanley, just turn it off. There's not much good preaching on TV either at all. So... Why is that? <clears throat> Am I talking about their technique? Am I talking about their delivery? Am I talking about, you know, I mean, we can split hairs over that. Y'all, I've seen people get mad. This preacher's too loud. This preacher's too quiet. This preacher's too long-winded. This preacher's too short-winded. This preacher preaches too much, you know, uses too much scripture in his message. This preacher doesn't use enough. These are stylistic differences. That's not what Jesus is talking about in Ephesus. What he's talking about is teachers who are just flat out lying. When a preacher stands up in front of you and says, you sow that seed of faith, you put that money in that offering plate and God's going to bless you, he doesn't know that. You put a hundred in that plate, God will turn it into a thousand. He doesn't know that. Your miracle is on the way. He doesn't know that. Y'all, there are wolves out there seeking to devour the sheep. And as a pastor, I view you as my flock. And occasionally, a good shepherd's got to shoot a wolf every once in a while. Not with a literal gun. I'm not going to... If you're a Sunday school teacher and you say one wrong thing, you don't have to bolt your doors at night to protect yourself from me. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is it is my job to guard the doctrine of this church. It is all of our job to be vigilant to make sure that when someone is teaching, I've got an 18-month-old daughter down there in that nursery. I have a vested interest in making sure she is taught correct doctrine because I don't want her believing in a Jesus that is not in this Bible but only exists in somebody else's head because it's a totally different Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? I want her to hear the truth. I want you to hear the truth. I want your kids to hear the truth. I want your grandkids to hear the truth. And Jesus wants them to hear the truth. So he commends the church at Ephesus and says... I know that you've tested those who showed up and said that they're apostles, but they're not. <clears throat> you've tested those that showed up and said they're teachers, and they're not good teachers. You can identify a heretic. Y'all, there is such a thing as true and false, and they, they're not fluid. And Jesus commends them. Y'all, it is an admirable trait as a church to be able to say we can recognize a lie when we hear it. As a pastor, I want that for Stapleton. I've told y'all before, if I ever stand up here and I go off book, fire me, please. I am a slave to this. I am a slave to Him. And if I ever go off the beaten path, I'm not helping anybody. 
And Jesus commends them. And, and <clears throat> this is good that he did because they must have listened to their pastor, Timothy. Listen to what, this is not on your handout, <clears throat> but listen to what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 4. Paul says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in the faith. That you see in Revelation the fruit of a lifetime of work from Pastor Timothy. That he's been guarding that doctrine. He's been stealing them against people who were going to lie. He prepared them Later on in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he even says there are going to be folks who teach doctrines of demons. Timothy, you got to prepare them for these folks who are going to come and lie to them. And Timothy did. And they listened. And they had everything in their head correct. They intellectually knew the faith. They had the, the, the T's crossed and the I's dotted. But guess what? That wasn't enough either. Do you know that your Christianity better not only exist in your head? Christianity is not a philosophical question or system of how to answer different questions. Now, don't get me wrong. It is true, and it provides answer to questions. But if it merely exists intellectually for you, <clears throat> let me ask the question this way. When is the last time the gospel stirred your emotions? When is the last time thinking about Jesus woke your heart up? I'm not saying you got to weep. Not all of us are criers. But when is the last time that your heart and your soul were stirred? By what Jesus has done for you. Intellectualism won't do that. Just knowing right stuff. Has there ever been a point in your life where you knew something was right and you didn't do it? Or you knew something was wrong and you did it anyway, even though you knew it? Yeah, y'all got real quiet. Uh-huh. I got to tell me everything I need to know. I'm right there with you. We're real bad in the Western world about thinking the answer to everything is education. I'm all for education. I, I am. I love it. I, I feel like the more you know, the better. But that is a means, not an end. Listen to this. Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. <clears throat> Paul says, indeed, you are called a Jew and you rest on the law and you make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? And then he goes through this long list and he says, guys, you know everything there is to know about moral right and wrong. But is that enough to keep you from doing wrong and encourage you to do right? Not always. Not always.
Y'all, if Christianity for you is just about stuff in your head full of Bible knowledge, you will burn out. You hear me? You will burn out. Think about your car. If you drove here today, your car had gas in it, didn't it? I hope. If you can drive a car without gas, please call me afterward because I would love to know how to do that. Does it make a difference whether or not you're a mechanic or whether or not you're a school teacher as to whether or not your car can run without gas? No, it doesn't, does it? So what you're telling me is it doesn't matter how much I know about the car, if I don't have the gas in the tank, it's not going to run. Right? It doesn't matter how much I know about God, if I don't have love for Him in my heart, my faith is not going to run. You can white knuckle, you can hard work it, you can say, I'm going to do this, but eventually you're going to get tired and you're going to quit and Sunday morning's going to roll around and you're going to say, I just don't have another one of these Sundays in me. Intellectualism, having right doctrine by itself, it's not enough. Works are not enough, right doctrine's not enough. What is it that God wants you to be motivated by? Easy, love. He wants you to be motivated by love. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. What are these first works that Jesus is talking about? Listen, <clears throat> Matthew twenty-two thirty-six 36 through 40. A Pharisee said to him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. For all the good works, for all of the doctrine, the Ephesians had somehow managed to become a church that was no longer characterized by love for Jesus. They were the frozen chosen. Whatever was motivating them, it wasn't love. And it was probably something different for every person. Some of them were motivated by hard work. Some of them were motivated by fear. Some of them were motivated by, I don't want to embarrass myself compared to the person next to, next to me. Whatever the motivation, Jesus threatened to come to them quickly and remove their lampstand. What does that mean? If the lampstands are the churches and Jesus says, I'm going to remove your lampstand, what is Jesus threatening to do? You see those doors back there? In fact, I'll give you what Jesus was threatening to do was take that key. I left my keys down there. Take that key off my key ring and walk up to the front doors of Ephesus and lock it and say, I'll take this key with me, thank you. Now every Tuesday I meet, unless I'm sick, which has happened a lot lately, but this Tuesday I was well, I meet with the other pastors in our association and our director of missions, Tim Batchelor. we were looking at this passage uh, <clears throat> and he said, Do you know, a lot of times when we see the lampstand, we assume that there was a light on the end of it, don't we? 
Scripture doesn't say the lampstand was lit. It just says the lampstand's there. I will move your lampstand. You think back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but what? He puts it on a stand so that it gives light to everybody in the house. Well, what, ha- what, what use is a lampstand if it's not lit? What use is a lampstand if it's dark? What use is a church if the message that we're projecting to the world is work hard, work long, be smart, but be loveless just like we are? Is that an attractive faith? Is that a faith that's going to inspire your kids and your grandkids to follow Jesus? Is that a faith that's going to inspire your husband or your wife to follow Jesus? Is that a faith that's going to inspire you to reach out to the world in missions, to reach out to your neighbor evangelistically? Is that the kind of faith that's going to do that? No, it takes love. Here's your application. Do you actually love the Father? Do you actually love Jesus? Do you actually love the Holy Spirit? First Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Now, y'all, why is Jesus so preoccupied with love when they've got the right works, they've got the right doctrine? Why is it? Y'all, what has Jesus done for us? What has He done? That Jesus left heaven on high where He was perpetually glorified at the right hand of His Father and in the presence of the Holy Spirit by every single angel and every single saint that has ever lived from time immemorial. He was recognized universally as God. What Jesus did is He took on flesh and dwelt among us. And He suffered and He died on a cross so that He could give you His righteousness and save your soul. That's worth love, isn't it? Not just allegiance. Not just loyalty. But love. How many of y'all absolutely love doing dishes? With your whole heart. Is this just like your favorite thing to do? I despise it. You know there's actually been research done that said the single household chore that causes the most strife in marriages is doing the dishes. <clears throat> that that's what, that if a spouse has to pick one chore that the other one doesn't do that annoys them the most, it's not cleaning the bathroom, it's not the laundry, it's not taking out the trash, it's doing the dishes. And why is that? It's because nobody likes to do dishes. The fact that you're doing them means that they're dirty. There's probably dried food on them. If they're piling up, right? You know. 
I don't like doing dishes. I especially don't like doing baby dishes. She got that little tray, and it's dyed red from spaghetti. Looks like a Revolutionary War battlefield. That was grotesque, I'm sorry. It looks like that. And she's got this bottle. My favorite thing is when she gets a bottle, she throws it on the floor. And I don't realize she threw it on the floor. And Emily doesn't realize she threw it on the floor. And I thought Emily took the bottle to the sink. And Emily thought I took the bottle to the sink. And we find the bottle of sour milk two days later. And the bottle stinks. And you want to just light it on fire and get rid of it. And so what you do is you dump it and you rinse it and you throw it in the, the, the baby bowl and you're like, I will get to it later. I will get to it later. And then nobody gets to it later. Do you know what, motivated, what, what motivates me to do baby dishes? I love my wife. Really. Think about something you do around your house that you, by yourself, you detest, but you do it because it makes your spouse happy. If you don't have something like that, that's your homework. Go find something like that. Something that you, by yourself, you don't have it in yourself. I'm not ever going to wake up and say, you know what, I want to clean this dish. I'm going to clean this bottle that probably needs to be thrown in a biohazard bin. No, I love my wife, so I'm going to do that for her. And she has things like that, that she hates them, but she's, you know, Josh loves this. I love him, so I'm going to do this. Do you know what? On a greater, grander level, that's what Jesus wants from us. He wants us to look and say, do you know what? I'm not motivated by hard work. This hard work, I'm not motivated by being strong and enduring. I'm not motivated by being intellectually right all the time. I am motivated by the fact that he loved me and died for me, so I will give him everything I've got and will not tire in doing it. Stapleton, if you want to see this building filled up and you want to see men and women and boys and girls and grandkids and kids and cousins come to Christ, you love them into this church. You love them to Jesus. And Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. How do you overcome? <clears throat> 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him, who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdened when you love him. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you want to overcome and therefore eat from the tree of life? Do you want that? Let me tell you how you get there. How you endure in your faith. How you persist.